you have anything to discuss? Any interesting tidbits, things? I just want to give a shout out to our favorite fan. <laughs> yeah, our only fan. <laughs> our only fan. Uh, my coworker Danny. Thanks so much for listening and for always commenting. I would say you mom, but you're my mom, so. You, you kind of have to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you don't have to listen. But thank you for listening. But I do appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so real quick PSA to any dude out there. When you're walking by somebody, don't touch their back. Especially if it's a woman. Oh yeah, what happened? So, I got in the elevator at work. And these two other men came in. And I got off on the first floor. Mm -hmm. They stayed on and one of them was standing right in front of the door. So I like moved to get around him and there was like a whole foot between us like it's a large elevator yeah and he like reached out his hand and patted me multiple times on the back and then held his hand there for too long that's creepy it was i felt very uncomfortable and i was mad about it for the rest of the day and i'm mad about it now so just stop touching people who like you don't know stop yeah, like, if, if they're not about them, to, like, run into them. something, don't do it. Well, and that goes for girl, too. Yeah. Like, just in general, if you don't know a person, don't touch them. Please, I do not want you to touch me. I don't know you. You should have learned to keep your hands to yourself when you were in, like, kindergarten. I was going to say, this is a preschool thing. <laughs> I didn't go to preschool. I didn't either. <laughs> Definitely a kindergarten thing. Yeah. That's Grace. That's Rachel. Welcome to our podcast. Yes, myths and misfortunes. We are a paranormal and true crime podcast. Each week, we pick somewhere in the world, base our stories on that place. And or surrounding areas. Yeah. I think this is one of those. (laughs) (laughs) Because Rachel had something very specific that she wanted to do, so I tried to do something close by. To be fair... What I wanted to do yeah. could have been... Who be fair? Who be fair? Yeah. Could have been two different cities. It's like right smack in the middle. Yeah, I, I just... You I, just picked the first one. <laughs> I actually was between three different stories. Okay. I decided literally at like 11 o'clock last night which one I was going to do. Procrastinator. Yeah, I was like, hey, mom, should I do this one or this one? She's like, everybody does that one. Do this one. And I was like, okay. Oh, okay. Now I'm curious. Well, because one was just like, man kills wife. Oh. She's yeah, like, that's that. like every story. I was like, okay, I'll do this weird one. Okay. Weird works. Okay. So where are we, Rachel? Oh, well, <laughs> thank you for asking. Today, we are in Ballard, Utah. Yes. So this will, yet again, be another Super short history. (laughs) (laughs) 
I sent Grace a picture of my computer screen last night saying, so the Wikipedia page has, yeah, like, two paragraphs. I thought the picture got cut off at first. <laughs> no. I was like, oh. <laughs> so my sources are wikipedia.com and ballardcity.org. Ballard, Utah is a town in Uintah County, Utah, and the 2000 census, its population was at 566. Oh, wow. The town has a total area of 14 square miles. All of it land. No water. <laughs> no All water, land. just land. Historically, Ballard, Utah has been a rural agricultural community. And in the past, residents of Ballard had to heavily rely on outside towns in order to do any kind of shopping. Yeah, I would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> well, today there are commercial and industrial establishments mm. all along the highway. So, you know, they got that going for them. And that's it. That's history. Wow. <laughs> Not a lot goes on here. No notable facts. Nothing nope. interesting. Wow. Mm, nothing I could find. Well, there's something to be said about... um. Small, small towns with industrial complex. With a what complex? Industrial complex. Oh. <laughs> That's a joke. No, there's not. It's fine. I'm good. I'm done. Okay. Uh, okay. What is your story today? That was so fast. I know. Um, I'm sorry. I wasn't expecting that so soon. <clears throat> Put me on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So today my story is about Mark William Hoffman. Hoffman. Yes. I thought you were going to say Hofstadter for a second. <laughs> we thinking... have used that name quite often, haven't we? Uh-huh. Weird. So this one is not in Ballard. It's in Salt Lake because I could not find a single thing in Ballard. Also, Salt Lake is bigger, so. Yeah. There was a lot there. Yeah. Like a lot. My sources are Murderpedia, which has a shit ton of sources in and of itself. So Wikipedia, um... New York Times. I'm so glad. Books and articles and shit. We haven't used Murderpedia in a while. I wanted to do this one instead of the other two where a guy kills his wife. Because this guy is a master forger and a murderer. A master forger Mm -hmm. and a murderer. Okay. Mm -hmm. Like forger as in forging signatures or forger as in forging iron? No, like um, forging books and documents and signatures okay. stuff like that okay <laughs> i don't know why i think I was you were like... thinking of a blacksmith i was thinking of blacksmith. okay okay yeah okay okay rachel rachel okay okay <laughs> so mark hoffman early life let's talk about it he was born december 7th 1954 as a sixth generation mormon Hoffman was I real I'm really gonna talk to Krista about this later. It's okay. Um, <laughs> Hoffman was below average in high school, but he had a lot of hobbies that I feel like not a lot of high schoolers have these days. Oh really? Yes. Such as magic, electronics. <laughs> the magic maybe, but I'm talking like 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 cheesy, gimmicky like yeah. magic. Yeah. Uh, so magic, electronics, chemistry. And stamp and coin collecting. Yeah. (laughs) Was he a 50-year-old man in high school? Basically. (laughs) So his friends said that he had a way of being able to just figure stuff out. 
yes. like the fact that he built a metal detector out of household items. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Um, oh, oh, also, he and his friends also apparently made bombs for fun. What a dumbass. Yeah. <laughs> the- uh. Yeah, he said, he said, which I don't know if I really believe him, but he said as a teenager, he forged a rare mint mark on a dime and was told by an organization of coin collectors that it was genuine. I don't believe that. I'm not sure I believe that one. I think, I I feel like he's kind of a narcissist. Probably. But, yeah. Anyway, so most young Mormon men are expected to go on a mission in order to try to get converts, basically. Mm Mm-hmm. So, in 1973, Hoffman volunteered to spend two years on his mission, and the church sent him to England Southwest Mission in Bristol. Sure. So, uh, when Hoffman called home, he told his parents that he had personally helped baptize multiple converts. I th- I really think he's a bit of a narcissist. He's like, I personally did that, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> I read that during his time away, he read a biography by Fawn Brody about the founder of the Mormon church, Joseph Smith, who they called the prophet. <laughs> okay. Basically, it's questioning whether or not he actually was a genuine prophet or just someone who was like really enthusiastic and could convince people of what he was talking about. So, Hoffman started buying a lot of books, Mormon and non-Mormon included, and it was fairly obvious that he was moving away from the church a little bit, like really questioning his beliefs. Mm -hmm. One of his ex-girlfriends actually said she thought he had lost his faith before he even went on that mission, and he only went because of the pressure he felt from the Mormon community and because he didn't want to disappoint his parents. Which actually is very common. I was going to say, yeah. Very common. Like, super common. Yeah. Out of, like, the multiple Mormons I know, I don't know many who are actually still Mormon. Just a couple. (laughs) Just, yeah, I mean, obviously there's still gonna be a few, but... Yeah. yeah. He personally said that he became an atheist as a teen. Okay. Yeah. for you, man. One article said that his grandmother had been the wife of a Mormon polygamist, and his family's reluctance... (laughs) Reluctance... His family's reluctance to discuss its involvement with plural marriage became an early source of Hoffman's resentment towards Mormonism. Yes, 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 yes. After he returned home from his mission, he enrolled as a pre-med major at Utah State University, and in 1979, he married Dora Lee Olds, and they had four children. Aww. Sure. So, his forgeries. Oh, gosh. There are so many. I had to cut this down because it was literally, like I told you, it was 12 pages long. So you just included the important ones? I tried to go for the important ones or the interesting ones. If they weren't super interesting or I didn't understand what it was about, (laughs) I just didn't do it. You know, that happens. Like I told you at one point, I was going to try to call Krista and ask her if she understood anything I was saying. But, um... I just googled it. It's fine. You still could have. I could have, but I didn't. So in 1980, Hoffman said that he had found a 17th century King James Bible with a folded paper stuck inside. 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 Wake me up, inside. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> with a folded paper stuck inside, the document seemed to be the transcript that Joseph Smith, the prophet, 
his scribe, Martin Harris, had presented to Charles Anthon, a Columbia classics professor in 1828. According to the Mormon scripture, Joseph Smith History, which is one of the books in the standard works of the Jesus, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So, you know how, like, the Bible has, like, multiple yeah. things. I'm not religious. <laughs> uh, well, the their book has that, too. Okay. That's one of the Mormon scriptures. The transcript and its unusual reformed Egyptian characters were copied by Smith from the Golden Plates, from which he translated the Book of Mormon. So, okay. found these plates and then translated them yeah. and it became the Book of Mormon. Oh, you're talking... Okay, I'm sorry. I thought you were talking about someone else, not their, like, actual prophet. Sorry. No, yeah, that is what I'm talking about. I didn't know the, what you were talking about. Oh, yeah, I because I did that thing in the leave. middle with the, like, talking about the books and shit. It was confusing. I had to explain what it was. It was weird. Yeah, I fully believe they believed he was their prophet, so, okay. So, Hoffman constructed his version to fit the professor's description of the document, and its discovery made Hoffman's reputation. An editor of Joseph Smith's papers and the best-known expert on handwriting and old documents in the historical park department of the LDS Church concluded that the document was a Joseph Smith holograph, which means that Joseph Smith wrote it himself. So he even fooled that guy. So the LDS Church announced the discovery of the Anthon transcript in April and purchased it from Hoffman for more than $20,000. Oh, wow. Yes, Hoffman immediately dropped out of school and went into business as a dealer in rare books. He began fabricating historically significant books and documents and became famous among LDS history buffs for his discoveries of previously unknown materials and writings pertaining to the church. Not sure. O- yeah, right? Sure, sure, sure. Not only were these forgeries so good that they fooled high-ranking members of the church, but also documents, experts, and distinguished historians. So what did he do? Did he just, like, study their writings? I think, yeah, okay, so when he he kept collecting all those books... Yeah. He would get really rare ones and he would study them and figure out like how they were made and he would try to replicate them as closely as possible. You know how there are those people who can just sort of like see the way somebody writes and can like copy it perfectly? He's just one of those people. Ugh. Okay. I wish I could be one of those people. Anyway, I used to try it in school. My teachers probably thought I had multiple personalities or short, I don't know, something. They were probably like, what's wrong with this kid? I, yeah, because my handwriting is so bad <laughs> that I tried to have, like, that nice, pretty girl handwriting. <laughs> Did not Dude, I've even tried had, having the nice, pretty girl handwriting. Like, because it's, it's pretty. I don't know. It's but pretty. I can't do it. I can't do it. Even my cursive is illegible. My mom has told me many times that I have doctor's handwriting. Mm-hmm. He wasn't just motivated by greed. He was he also wanted to deeply embarrass the church by undermining its history. Okay. <laughs> so, during the 1980s, a significant number of new Mormon documents came about, and sometimes the church received these as donations and others it purchased. A lot of them were publicized, and others were acquired and secretly suppressed. Mm. Yeah. 
1981, Hoffman went to the headquarters of the Utah church with a document which supposedly provided evidence that Joseph Smith, the prophet, had designated his son as his successor rather than Brigham Young, which is a really big thing in the Mormon community. Okay. The letter basically would portray Brigham Young and the LDS church in an unfavorable light, and according to Hoffman, the person he gave it to filed the letter away in a safe in the first presidency's office, which I guess that's a thing is in Mormon stuff. I don't know. Krista. <laughs> Krista, can you let me know? <laughs> let me know. <laughs> so Hoffman expected the church to buy the blessing on the spot and bury it, but the price was too high. So they're like, nah. Nah. Nah, we good. Yeah. Hoffman offered it to the Missouri Church, the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which this is why it's such a big deal, because they had always claimed that the line of succession had been bestowed upon Joseph Smith's line, like that fake document would say, Yeah. but they had never had any written proof. So Hoffman, posing as a faithful Utah Mormon, presented it to his own church in exchange for items worth more than $20,000. So that the other church wouldn't get it. Mm-hmm. However, he engineered the situation so as to ensure that the document would be made public anyway. <sighs> the very next day, a New York Times headline read, Mormon document raises doubts on succession of church's leaders. And the LDS church was forced to confirm the discovery and publicly present the document to the RLDS church. Okay. Yeah. He really wanted to fuck them up. Yeah. So Salt Lake County District Attorney's investigator Michael George believed that after Hoffman had successfully forged the blessing, which is what he called that document, Mm -hmm. his ultimate goal was to create the lost 116 pages of the Book of Mormon, which he could have filled with inconsistencies and errors and then sell them to the church to be hidden away. And then, like with a bunch of other documents, make sure that it was made public. So they would be really embarrassed. That's crazy. This is just... I know! So this is why I chose this one (laughs) instead of the other two. So no one is certain really how many forged documents Hoffman created during the early 1980s. Wow. (laughs) 1890s? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But I left out so many. Like, so many. So many. But there were dozens. And he made upwards of $2 million on all of this. Damn. So, to make the sudden flood of important Mormon documents seem plausible, he explained that he relied on a network of tipsters, that he had methodically tracked down modern descendants of early Mormons, and that he had mined collections of 19th century letters that had been saved by collectors for their postmarks rather than their contents. Boring shit. Sure. Yeah. In addition to documents from Mormon history, Hoffman also forged and sold signatures of many famous non-Mormons, including George Washington, John Adams, John Quincy Adams, Daniel Boone, John Brown, Andrew Jackson, Mark Twain, Nathan Hale, John Hancock, Francis Scott Key, Abraham Lincoln, John Milton, Paul Revere, Miles Standish, and Button Gwinnett, whose signature was the rarest and therefore the most valuable of any signer on the Declaration of Independence. Two things. Yes. One, wow. Two, you said uh, Nathan, whatever, in my mind went to Nathan Fillion. Oh, Nathan Hale. Nathan Hale. And my mind went to Nathan Fillion. I was like, that's not right. Nope. 
<laughs> he also forged a previously unknown poem in the hand of Emily Dickinson, but Hoffman's biggest scheme was to forge one of the most famous missing documents in American colonial history, the Oath of a Freeman. The one-page oath had been printed in 1639, and the first document it was the first document to be printed in Britain's American colonies, but only about 50 copies had been made. A genuine example was probably worth over a million dollars in 1985, and Hoffman's agents began to negotiate a sale to the Library of Congress. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So, despite all of the money he had made from his sales, he was deeply in debt because of his increasingly lavish lifestyle and the many genuine first edition books that he purchased. Hmm, I wonder why. In order to clear his debt, he attempted to sell an extensive collection of documents written by William E. McClellan, who was an early Mormon apostle who broke with the LDS church. The documents were reported to hold revelations unfavorable to the LDS church. There was one problem, though. He didn't know where the collection was, and he didn't give himself enough time to actually forge them. Hmm. Yeah. That's funny. Eventually, the people that he owed money or documents to were all trying to get what they were owed, and the sale of Oath of a Freeman was delayed by questions about its authenticity. So, what do you do when you're in a hard spot and owe people things you don't have? Kill yourself? What the (laughs) fuck? No, of course not. (laughs) I thought that's where you were going. No, no. No, you buy time by constructing bombs and using them to kill people. Oh, so the opposite direction. Yes. Um, Okay. On October 15th, 1985, the first bomb killed document collector Stephen Christensen, or Christensen, who was facilitating the McClellan deal uh, for the church. Later that same day, a second bomb killed Kathy Sheets, the wife of Christensen's former employer. Hoffman intended for the police to suspect that the bombings were related to the impending collapse of an investment business that Kathy's husband and Christensen were a part of. However, it mm-hmm. worked a little too well. And that afternoon, a church leader simply replaced Christensen in the McClellan deal and rescheduled the closing for the next day. So, because he wouldn't be able to close the deal, Hoffman drove 90 miles to buy bomb parts under several aliases and then returned to Salt Lake City with a third motion-sensitive bomb, which he dropped while stalking another victim. Smart. Yeah. Uh, the third bomb was in his car and it blew up and he was injured. <laughs> Okay. So, because of this, police quickly focused in on Hoffman as a suspect. Oh, I wonder why. Right. Uh, And a lot of his business associates went into hiding, fearing that they would become victims, too. Mm Mm-hmm. And then, during the bombing investigation, police discovered evidence of the forgeries in Hoffman's basement, and they found the engraving plant where the forged plate for the Oath of a Freeman had been made. (laughs) And obviously, all the bomb shit he had. Yeah. So Hoffman was arrested for murder and forgery in February 1986. And in January of 1987, he pled guilty to two counts of second-degree murder and two counts of theft by deception to avoid the death penalty, confessing to his forgeries in open court. Okay. Yeah. In January 1988, he was sentenced to life in prison. 
1988, <laughs> for the Utah Board of Pardons, he is insane. Yeah. So he confessed that he thought planting the bomb that killed Kathy Sheets was almost a game. A game? A game. He said that the time at the time he made the bomb, he thought it didn't matter if it was Mrs. Sheets, a child, or a dog who was killed. Yeah. Okay. Within an hour of the parole board, uh, within an hour, the parole board, ho- horrified by Hoffman's callous disregard for human life, decided that he would serve his natural life in prison. Good. After Hoffman was imprisoned, his wife filed for divorce. Good. And yeah, right. Despite her denials, there has been speculation that she knew more about the forgeries than she admitted. Ah. Oh. But she wasn't charged with anything, so. Yeah. Hoffman attempted suicide in his cell by taking an overdose of antidepressants. He was revived, but not before spending 12 hours lying on his right arm, blocking its circulation and causing muscle atrophy. So his forging hand was thereby permanently disabled. Well, that's good, I guess. Yes. To this day, he is considered to be the best forger ever caught, and an unknown number of his forgeries may still be in circulation. No. Yes. Oh, no. Yes. Oh, okay. And uh, that is the story of uh, Mark William Hoffman. So, my story this week is Skinwalker Ranch. My sources are... I'm taking this off. Wicca, I'm taking it off. My sources are Wikipedia, weird.com, skinwalkerranch.org, aandenetworks.com, allthatsinteresting.com, thoughtcatalog.com, Jesus, dgomag.com, gaia.com, miamighostchronicles.com, and legendsofamerica.com. Miami Ghost Chronicles. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, okay, so, Skinwalker Ranch. I I was really trying to think about how I first heard about it. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. I literally have no idea when I first heard about Skinwalker Ranch. Uh, it just, one of those, I think I saw it on something. I can't even tell you what. But I saw it, and it has just stuck in my mind because it's just a hotbed i think i first heard did they do it on lore i don't know no i don't think so because i don't think that the first time i heard of it was on and that's why we drink no because i heard about it before then but i don't know where but i mean i can't i actually forgot it was on and that's why we drink i should have listened to that episode okay anyway the ranch is between 420 and 512 acres. And I say... That's a lot. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I say between because none of those horses can agree on just how big it is. Oh, I thought no, I, th- I thought you said none of the horses could, ag- <laughs> could agree. <laughs> yes, none of the horses could agree on just how big the land they were standing on <laughs> None of on the is. horses could put Humpty Dumpty <laughs> back together again. <laughs> Uh. Well, it's it's a cattle ranch, so, you know, you need a lot of land. Oh, cause... right. They wouldn't have any eggs, of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, they might. No Humpty Dumpty there. Shh. It is southeast of Ballard, Utah, and only 3.5 miles southwest from Fort Duchesne. Hmm. If I pronounced it wrong, 
I'm sorry. I tried to look it up. It didn't help. Sometimes looking it up doesn't work anyway because of colloquialisms. Yeah. So first, I want to give a little bit of history about the place. In 1776, the Dominguez and Escalante expedition traveled through Mighton along Skinwalker Ranch. In 1861, the Utah Valley Reservation was created by executive order. Utah. <laughs> Utah. <laughs> Uh, uh, was created by executive order of President Abraham Lincoln for the Ute tribes. In 1860, several bands of the Ute tribes were relocated to the reservation surrounding the ranch. In 1886, the construction of a fort in Fort Duchesne was completed and soldiers were stationed there. In 1905, John and Emma Myers built a small homestead on what is now the Skinwalker Ranch. Mm-hmm. Around this same time, the Locke family moves to the west side of the property. Between 1906 and 1911, rumbles were heard underground, day and night. Wait, there are multiple people? Living or multiple there families? There are multiple families living on one property. I thought it was just one big family. Okay. Yeah, multiple families. Well, they were on, like, separate sides of the property. Well, yeah, but I mean, I thought that they it was, like, one family. Like, a large family. We get there. Oh, Okay. I mean, still not a large family, but we get there. There is an actual newspaper clipping of this. Apparently, the locals got so used to the rumblings that were almost constantly happening that it just didn't phase them anymore. That's like the planes flying over my house. I don't even hear it anymore. Exactly. And this is kind of when a lot of the weird stuff starts happening. And I'm just going to start segueing into the stories here. Okay. The Locke family that I mentioned just a second ago mentioned that one day in 1915, a strange man appeared at the door asking for a glass of water and continued to have a long conversation with the family. They noted that while he had on a period-appropriate outfit, that there was a dazzling blue one-piece outfit on underneath. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) He then walked off and just kind of disappeared. It's assumed that this man was telling the family where they could and couldn't dig on the property. Yeah. I assumed it was just a really rich person who wanted to hide that they were rich. They just put clothes on on top of their actual clothes. But it was a one piece. It was like a unitard. How would they know that unless they took off his clothes? Maybe he didn't button everything properly. Do you think maybe it was like a lycra suit? Yes. Okay. Yes. Then around 1930... The grandson, Christopher Locke, we assume grandson, time-wise, found the first evidence of cattle mutilation on the ranch. This began happening so often that Kenneth and Edith Myers bought a trailer and moved to the east side of the property, hoping to get away from it. That's such a large property. Oh, yeah, we're having some cattle mutilation over here. How about you guys? (laughs) (laughs) In... In 1944, there was a sighting of a large silver globe-like object seen flying over the fort. Because I'm not going to mispronounce that again. (laughs) (laughs) The person who reported this also did a little bit of their own research and came to the possible conclusion that it might have been a Japanese Fugo hydrogen-filled balloon bomb. Oh. Apparently during that time, you know, of the war... 
the Japanese had released several of these balloons, hoping that they would make their way via the jet stream to land in American forests and start fires. Oh. Over 9,300 of these balloons were released, and 300 were found and observed in the U.S. Dang. Between 1950 and 1980, there was an apparent surge in UFO activity. In 1951, local high school teacher Junior Hicks and his students observed an unidentified flying object moving through the skies above the ranch. He then proceeded to record over 400 individual paranormal events in and around the ranch. That's too many. (laughs) Paranormal. (laughs) I'm sorry, once you get to like 12, maybe you should leave. (laughs) Probably. I feel like once you get to the first 50, you're like, maybe you get used to it. Yeah, you you would think. I feel like at 100, you should just stop documenting and move. Well, he's, I don't know. he's not the one living there. He's just, you know, going there. and Oh, he doesn't even live there. No. Okay. <laughs> it's just going there to document it. Okay. Apparently, during the expedition in 1776, the explorers reported seeing objects in the sky over their campfires at night. Huh. And the sightings between the 50s and 80s include that of strange fireballs and aircraft that were between 20 and 30 feet across, up to the size of a football field. Oh, dang. Wait, when was this? Between the 50s and the 80s. Okay. They are described as being round, oval, cigar-shaped, and even triangular. These aircraft are supposedly surrounded by glowing green lights. Others apparently emit wavy red beams and shoot colored lights from underneath. It's a rave. It's a It's a rave. (laughs) By the 70s, the Utah Highway Patrol had been receiving so many UFO calls that they had stopped filing incident reports on them. Oh, cool. (laughs) During Hicks's research, he uncovered that the Ute tribes would not go near the ranch. According to them, the border of the ranch is on the path of the Skinwalker. And for that reason, they won't go near the property. Smart. Yeah, you know, kind of ties in with your story last week. Yeah. If you did listen to the last episode, you know that the Skinwalker is a malevolent, shape-shifting witch or entity of the Navajo people. And the Ute tribe take them very, very seriously. Yeah. They believe that the Navajo people curse them because of how the Ute treated them. Yeah. They believe that the Skinwalkers do not live on the ranch, but rather in a place called dark canyon which is super close to the ranch i actually did read i was gonna put in the history that the uh spanish and the and they got together to fight the navajo i just didn't do it (laughs) i didn't do it either (laughs) i just assumed we could all you know we knew what happened we can assume what happened yeah yeah they have been seen near the ranch on the road to the fort and various places near the reservation they've been described as human-like with dog heads smoking cigarettes (laughs) sure (laughs) they have also been described as large black hairy humanoid figures that are very fast yes and they also have unusually large red eyes yeah in 1987 you think mothman is a skinwalker entirely possible if the rake is apparently yeah people think the rake is too yeah what if everything Everything. in the world is just a (laughs) tulpa yeah i'm right there everything's just a everything's a tulpa We all all made it up in our heads, and it came to life. In 1987, the Myers left their ranch. You know, at this point, they were like, 
80 years old. Yeah. You can no longer take care of it. And just at that point, they were like, yeah, we're too old for we're this too, shit. Yeah, we're too old for this shit. Yeah. It then sat abandoned until Edith's death at 88 Aww. in 1994, at which point... That's when I was born. Oh, that's when you were born, too. That's, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's when we that's were when born. when we were born. No, this was made. Neither of us were born oh. yet. Well. At which point, the property was sold to Terry and Gwen Sherman. The couple moved in with their two children and livestock. And upon moving in, they were surprised to find deadbolts on all of the doors and windows. <laughs> Several yeah. of them actually had deadbolts on both the inside and the outside. Did they not check out the house before they moved? Mm-mm. Okay. Well, here's something else. The kitchen cabinets also had deadbolts. What the hell? Yeah. I have no idea. The only thing I can come up with is if maybe there's a poltergeist haunting and they're just, like, slamming doors that... Oh, I was gonna say maybe um one of them was sleepwalking and they would get up in the middle of the night and like mess with stuff or that yeah or they were possessed or yeah or that they also found large chains outside that looked as if they might have been used to restrain a large heavy animal um no thanks <laughs> well they assumed that this was the previous owner setting up guard dogs at the front and the back of the house oh so surprise bitch they're guard skinwalkers <laughs> well it didn't take long for the shermans to begin having experiences honestly it began the first day they moved in oh yeah. great, great the family encountered a larger than usual wolf that allowed the family to pet it uh, since obviously this animal was domestic they thought nothing of it and went about their business moving in uh, However, it then proceeded to make its way to where the cattle were and attacked a small calf, grabbing Jesus. it by the nose and trying to pull it through the corral. <laughs> Terry Sherman and his father began beating the wolf to try and get it to let go of the calf. When it wouldn't budge... <laughs> Just get a roll of newspaper and let go right now! <laughs> well, if it's a dog, normally that'll work. When it wouldn't budge, Terry shot the wolf with a .357 Magnum. At point-blank range. But still, it held on very tightly to the calf. Oof. After a second shot, the animal let go of the calf and looked calmly at the men. I don't like that. I don't either. After a few more shots, the wolf finally turned around and just walked away. Um... Just, just trotted away. There was no blood or any sign of injury apparent on it. Keep in mind, he shot this thing point-blank. Multiple times. I don't like that... The men followed its tracks for a mile before the tracks just suddenly ended and the wolf seemingly vanished. No. I don't like that. <laughs> a few weeks later, Gwen Sherman encountered yet another large wolf, except this time the animal was so large that its back came to the top of the window on her car. Oh, dear. It was also accompanied by another cane canine-like animal that she just couldn't identify. That's what you want to hear. Oh, yes. Over the next two years, a lot of weird stuff happened. Several strange animals were seen in the area. This included multicolored birds that were not native to the region. Huh. And tall, dark beasts that resembled Bigfoot or Sasquatch. <laughs> On one occasion, the Sherman saw a hyena-like creature attacking one of their horses. Yikes. Yeah. They also had their fair share of UFO sightings. They would see beams of light moving around land from the sky to the ground. 
I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, beams of light. Beam. Just mm. beams of light. No source. Just from the oh, sky. Just from the, oh. from the sky down and just moving around. Okay. Yeah. So fun. Large holes and crop circles were found throughout the land as well. Gotta love crop circles. There were also musky odors that would waft throughout the house. Ew. Like, okay, well, my logic is, like, since wolves are a common theme here, yeah. apparently, I'm imagining the smell of a dog who's been outside in the hot sun all day. Like, that kind of musk. I know you know the smell I'm talking about. I do, but I don't really consider that to be musk. I do. <laughs> I think that's musk. <laughs> that's musk. There have also been sounds of running machinery coming up from the ground underneath the house. Oh. Fun, fun. Nearby farmers witnessed blue orbs flying above the ranch. The Shermans claimed that there was even some intelligence behind the orbs, and they're huh. flying. Are there any, like, cave systems around that? It's Utah. Yeah, but I mean specifically yes. in that area. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's, um, the Skinwalker Canyon is close. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. okay. They claimed that the orbs were also very frightening. And at one point, they were all sleeping in the same room. There weren't just blue orbs. There were also orange balls of light. And even something that resembled RVs. The Shermans actually assumed that they were lost RV campers. That is, until they saw them lift off the ground and fly into the sky. Okay. Yeah, I'd be kind of freaked out by that. Window-like portals would also just appear showing images from somewhere else and then vanish. Cool. It's like Teletubbies. Yes. Sweet. Teletubbies and skinwalkers. There was also poltergeist-like behavior in the house. Mm. Items would go missing only to show up in weird places later, like the microwave. Uh, their cattle, like that of the Locke family, were constantly mutilated. Some even just plain disappeared. The animal's eyes, ears, and genitals were seemingly surgically removed. What the fuck? Without any trace of blood. What? Yeah. In all of the mutilation cases, there, I mean, no blood. None. At all. Was there blood, like, in the bodies, but just not... Just none flowing out from the the orifices that just... That's were removed. Yeah. And there was no evidence of any predators. There was no footprints or tire tracks. And if someone was doing this to them, they left zero proof. Were the wounds, like, cauterized or... Mm-mm. Weird. Very weird. Like, I would show you pictures, but I, I didn't like the pictures. Oh, uh, I'm good. Uh, yeah. One of the cattle that disappeared seemed to have just been lifted right off of the snow-covered ground. The hoof prints led into a field and stopped. There were twigs and branches surrounding the area, and it seemed as if the top of the trees had just been cut off. So, alien, perhaps? That's not nice to trees. No, it's not. Uh, speaking of orbs, the last straw for the family was when their dogs followed the orbs into a nearby bush. And then they howled in pain. When the family went looking for them the next day, all they found were scorch marks on the ground and what looked like incinerated remains. What the fuck? The dogs were never seen again. What the fuck? I know. That was the worst part for me, too. After two years of dealing with all of this, the families finally spoke out about everything. Their claims first appeared in the Salt Lake City, Utah Deseret News. I did spell that right. Okay. (laughs) And later in the weekly Las Vegas Mercury as a series of articles by journalist and author George Knapp. 
Knapp and co-author Colm Keller wrote a book detailing the investigations into everything going on in and around the ranch. I was going to read this book, but I have to find it first. <laughs> and also, I just found out about it last night. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> the Shermans, being just completely done with the property, were ready to put their property up for sale. However, before they ever got the chance, a gentleman by the name of Robert Bigelow, who is a billionaire businessman, who founded the Bigelow Aeros? Who founded the Bigelow Aerospace? The Bigelow Aerospace. Who founded Bigelow Aerospace? Offered to buy the property after reading their story in the newspaper. Uh huh. He bought the ranch for two hundred thousand dollars, with inflation that brings it to three hundred and twenty-seven thousand eight hundred sixty-two dollars and thirty-three cents in twenty twenty. Still not enough. Still not enough. Bigelow then established a compound with so much technology, PhD-level investigators and scientists, huh. and security out the wazoo. Cool. They were the National Institute of Discovery of Science. Their purpose was to research and advance the study of various sciences and paranormal topics, including that of UFOs. However, with little evidence, they disbanded in 2004. The organization was quickly replaced by the Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies. This new organization was much more secretive. And in 2007, the Advanced Aviation Threat Identification Program was a secret investigatory effort funded by the U.S. Defense Department in order to study unidentified flying objects. Cool. Over the next several years, $22 million was spent on the program. Damn. And it was run by military intelligence official Louis Elizondo from the Pentagon. Huh. And none of this information was public until 2017. Yeah. When New York Times, they literally, the story broke. And that's when people got pissed off because that's where their tax dollars were going. Yeah. (laughs) Why are my tax dollars going to UFOs? Yeah. Today, parts of the study are still classified, but the Department of Defense has never officially acknowledged the existence of the program. However, they did admit to the program being shut down in 2012. They exist, but they don't exist. They exist, but they don't exist anymore. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Due to being shut down, the ranch was then sold in 2016 to Adamantium Holdings for $4.5 million. Sounds suspect. Yeah. And nothing's really been told since then. But now that we have the story, let's go into a little what is seen there and the likelihood of seeing it if you're in the area. Ooh. I did leave off just a few things because I was like, this, no. (laughs) (laughs) This, no. This has nothing to do with the ranch. No. So, okay. There is a 46% chance of seeing something called the spotlight. Okay. It is a single spotlight similar to that seen on motorcycles. Okay. And it is typically hovering about eight feet off the ground and moving 10 to 40 miles per hour. 10 to 40. 10 to 40. Got it. 10 4. Yeah. It is sometimes seen with a red taillight and can fly over top any type of terrain. Ghost motorcycle. It's a ghost motorcycle. Oh, I like that uh, ghost, ghost motorcycle rider. in... Oh, oh. No. I was thinking. <laughs> I was thinking in Danny Phantom. Oh. <laughs> I'm the child here. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> to the researchers there, they say that it seems to be a type of observation vehicle 
and at times it will ignore witnesses or not be able to find their location. Other times it will directly beam its spotlight on the witnesses, and if it spots you, it does apparently interact with you, which Hmm. I'm assuming can be very terrifying. I guess it's what they were talking about when they said that one of them seems sentient? Yes. Okay. Flash drones can often be mistaken for the spotlight. Flash drones are pulsating spherical balls of lights that appear bluish or yellow-green. The light it casts is not extremely bright, but will, you know, shine light on objects within proximity. There tend to be more than one orbs in flash drones, and they can hover and tend to make no noise. Hmm. They pulsate really bright and then dim into non-existence before reappearing in a different spot. They have been seen transforming into animals and often can affect electrical objects, Hmm. even knocking out power to the ranch house. That sounds like Mothman. It does, right? Mothman is everywhere. Telling you. They are... Huh? (laughs) Lamp. (laughs) They are thought to be intelligent and seem to have a purpose. The researchers assume that these are transportation vehicles or drones for another intelligence that are used for observation purposes. Everything is an observation. (sighs) This is supposedly the most interactive of all of the anomalies and will even pursue and entertain its viewers. Interesting. Like, if you see them, they're just going to dance for you. Dance for my pretty lights. Yeah. You also have a 25% chance of seeing them. I thought you were going to say you also have a 25% chance of death. Yes, well, yes. The invisible chopper can be heard coming from the south and flying north. Even in broad daylight, it cannot be seen, even though it is heard. Oh. It will pass over you once and will not return. So interesting. So one of them is seen and not heard. The other one is heard and not seen. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. There's a 5.8% chance of hearing it. That's a very specific number. <laughs> a, I don't know where they got their numbers. I'm just repeating. Like, he's extremely specific. Yeah. 0.8. 5.8. I know, just the 0.8. Point eight. Yep, that's that's not the best one. The mini stealth is described as a miniature version of the stealth fighter. Obvi- mini stealth? It's in mini the name. Stealth, yeah. Roughly 8 feet by 6 feet, it flies extremely fast from south to north. It is all black in color, and there is no exhaust that can be seen. Hmm. There's a 7% chance of seeing it. 7% chance? Okay. So, okay, I've already mentioned the wolf. I'm not, I'm not going to go back to that. The only difference is that on their website, they mentioned that it's a dire wolf that uh, is seen. Okay. Oh, you did tell me yeah. you got, you got sucked into a... That's uh... where I got into the black hole. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. There are entities known as the controllers, and they seem to be two adult males speaking to one another in another language. They are typically invisible and are heard roughly 20 feet above one's head. I don't know how they're getting their numbers. When they are not visibly seen, they make no attempt to directly communicate with witnesses. However, once they realize they have been seen, which does happen from time time to time, they will promptly stop talking. Okay. So they're not seen, but they're seen. Sometimes they're seen. Sometimes they make themselves visible. I'm not sure if it's on accident or what. There is a 15% chance of hearing them and a 1.3% chance of seeing them. One bo- Where are they getting their numbers? <laughs> oh my god. The Traveler and the Dark One 
are thought to be the same figure. They are ancient native men dressed in primitive attire. It is said that the traveler lost his family and the entire tribe to the sky beasts who came out of a bright light. Okay. At times he is seen as flesh and blood, while other times he is merely translucent and appears to be in another timeline just completely confused. Alright, alright, okay, Uh okay. The traveler is known to initiate communication with those who seek his audience. Hmm, okay. Yeah, sounds like a nice guy, right? The dark one does not speak. (laughs) (laughs) The dark one does not speak. I just love his name, the dark one. The dark one, the dark one has risen. (laughs) He is thought to reside outside of our timeline and appears surprised whenever he is encountered. Speculations are that he may have been the one to open the original portal and is somehow trapped in time. Okay. There is a 2% chance of seeing the Traveler. (laughs) I can't with these fucking... uh... Okay, go. Go, sorry. And a 5% chance of making contact with him. Okay. 2% seeing him, 5% making contact. All right. There is only... A 0.03% chance of seeing the dark one. I can't. Okay, which source did these numbers come from? The actual website. Oh, yeah, you told me a lot about that website. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The orange football. (laughs) (laughs) These are some A-plus names right here. Uh, The orange football. Okay. Is a traditional UFO shape. I would have just said, the sunburned Arnold. <laughs> That's a great name. Band name. Yes. Tra- sunburned yeah. Arnold. Yep. Trademark. It's a traditional UFO shape, but a metallic surface has never been observed on it. It appears to be 15 feet wide and 10 feet high. Okay. And it is seen as an orange glowing ball of plasma with tendrils of red flame-like plasma along the outer perimeter. It's a mini-sun. It's a mini-sun. There's a 4% chance of seeing that. <sighs> and my favorite, purely because of the name, though, the sentient mist. <laughs> All hail the glow cloud. <laughs> There's only a 2% chance of seeing our <laughs> lovely sentient 2% mist. 2% chance. I can't with these fucking things. Okay. It is described as a neurological electricity. I'm sorry. That's what it said. A neurological electricity. electricity. It is completely black in color and takes the form of thick smoke. That... It is believed that it is a temporary body taken by an unformed entity in order to survive traversing through a wormhole. Okay. The mist will then transition into a humanoid wolf or local animal shape interesting where's it getting the electricity from it's an alien <laughs> no i i don't mean where's it getting its electricity where are they getting the electricity oh, okay. thing from I'm, I'm almost there oh okay the mist will then transition into a humanoid wolf or local animal shape once it has emerged from the portal the site i was using had this little update to it like it literally said with the asterisk update apparently it has tentacles <laughs> That it uses to toxify its victims by inserting said tentacle into the person's mouth. No! And suffocating them with a burning dust straight into their lungs. No! This then transports the victims into the spirit world. I can't. I I don't remember any of that. (laughs) There are some other creatures that I didn't write down. One is called a water baby. 
One is the Chulu Slug. Okay. Wait, what? Okay, think like Cthulhu. Yeah. But slug. Okay. Ew. Um, They're really coming in strong with the tentacle thing. Yeah. Okay. Fun stories. I know how much you love tentacles. Oh, yeah. Totally. I do I do actually really do love octopus. They're like they're great. Okay. Oh, like just... the actual creature though. Yes. Okay, anyway, that is my story. 7% of me like no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 7 7% of you hated it, right? Uh, 3.8% of me was indifferent. Okay. But the rest seemed to like it a lot. Okay. It was just that last part, right? I I don't mm. Mm, yeah. <sighs> wow. I wow. It was something else. That's amazing. So, if you enjoyed this episode, or if you didn't, or if you didn't, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Myths and Misfortunes, or Twitter at Myths Misfortune, or you can search for us using our full name, Myths and Misfortunes. We pop up. You can also send us an email to mythsandmisfortunes at gmail.com. Our music was composed by McKean Fulbright, and our art was created by Heather Marie Atkins. Their websites can be found in the description below. And please, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And thanks so much for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye.